because it's so daunting, they say, well, I, I'm, I'm just not going to try because there's no way I can make it, you know, a year or five years. And I would say that if you if you literally just focus on what is in front of you, which is the next choice, right? You have the next choice to either to, to, to go this way or go that way, to drink or to not drink, to reach out for help or not reach out for help, then just make the next right choice. And Welcome to the Together Sober Podcast. I am your host, Louise Barnett, former Fortune 100 Global Sales Director turned Jay Shetty Accredited Life Coach. Each week, we will provide you a safe space of guidance, empathy, accountability, and support, helping you to find effortless sobriety and mental peace. You know the whole concept of paying it forward? That's exactly what Hit Subscribe does. It sends a message to the universe, to people who need to hear the lessons and the tools from the Together Sober podcast. Hit subscribe. Welcome back to another episode of the Together Sober podcast, where our mission every single week is through our storytelling and candid conversations to create survival guides out of our collective stories. Every single week, I'm extremely excited to bring a new individual with a new experience, new tools, new resources, a new background to you so that it can help you and aid you on your sobriety journey for yourself and maybe also for a loved one. Now, this individual is certainly not shy to sharing his story to the world in the podcasting space and uh, far beyond that as well. And I have to say, I'm honestly honored that he's here today with us to share his story and to have a candid conversation about his experience and where it's led him today in an effort that we can help you and also prevent a lot of some of the challenges that we're presented with um, as a result of our addiction. So I'm not going to waste any time here. I am so excited to introduce you to Martin Lockett. Now, this uh, snippet that I'm going to read to you is taken straight from his website. It's a really compelling introduction to him. And here it is. Martin, Lock Martin Lockett grows up in a tough neighborhood in Portland, Oregon. And by the time he's 15, his parents don't know what to do with him. He and his homies steal cars, drink, and smoke dope. And even though Martin's bright, the only time he does well at school is when he gets kicked out and has to attend alternative classes. As soon as he's returned to his friends, though, he's right back into trouble. After Martin serves three years in prison for his part in a robbery, he finally seems to turn himself around. He gets a good job, moves up in the company, meets a nice girl, and he's proud to buy his first car. But his decision to get behind the wheel one drunken New Year's Eve leaves two innocent people dead, several families destroyed, and puts the 24-year-old Martin behind bars for nearly 20 years. And what he realizes is a palpably irony. It is in prison that Martin finally finds meaning and direction in his life. Devastated by the tragedy he has caused, he takes advantage of the educational opportunities offered to him. With his study of psychology, he begins to unravel the tangled threads of his life, gaining wisdom and insight he puts to use in understanding his own youthful motivations and in counseling other young men like him who are headed straight for disaster. 
penned with prison walls where the author still resides, prison to purpose pipeline, moving chronicles, a lost man's discovery of himself and his potential as an instrument for good. While he was incarcerated, Martin entered, earned a BS in sociology, an MS in psychology, and also got state certified as a substance abuse counselor. Since his release, he has shared his powerful story um, at DUI victim impact panels, alcohol highway safety classes, conferences, and high schools across the country. Currently, he works as a substance abuse counselor and speaks nationally to spread DUI prevention and awareness. Martin, we're so happy to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Louise. Um, it's, it's an incredible honor to be here. You do phenomenal work with this platform, and I'm just I'm just humbled to be here today and share my story. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're excited to hear um, a little bit about your story. I know we're going to get into a nice, juicy conversation a little bit later today, but for those listeners that haven't heard your story, um, you know, obviously it's it's one with a lot of twists and turns and ups and downs. So just take us kind of on a walk of your story, Martin, wherever you think is appropriate. Um, and we are all ears to kind of just gain a little insights to a, a peak of your past. Absolutely. So I grew up in Northeast Portland, Oregon in the 80s. And I know Portland has a mantra of kind of keep Portland weird today and you know, a very liberal city and things like that. But I can say it was vastly different in the 80s. It was a war zone of sorts. There were gangs coming up from California fighting for territory. It was the the, the epidemic of crack cocaine had, had burst onto the scene. So there was that. There were drive-by shootings routinely. It was it was not a safe place to live. Fortunately, I had the the the, the great fortune of having both parents loving parents in the household where my dad worked at the shipyard to support the family and my mom stayed home to take care of us kids. There were four, four of us. I have a twin brother and two older sisters. And it was a pretty standard working class household. Their, you know, mom and dad didn't drink, do drugs, were responsible. But around age 14, and I have to throw in here that I was I was pretty shy. And so it was never easy for me to just um, you know, take to a social setting and be okay. And so I remember when I got to high school, I was pretty much at anybody's mercy who would have me and I would do anything they basically wanted me to do to gain their acceptance. So this led to me kind of hanging out with some of the guys who lived, kids who lived in my neighborhood, but I had never met. And I remember we started, you know, skipping a class here and there, smoking cigarettes, you know, kind of just teenage mis mischievous things. But then that that quickly exacerbated into, you know, stealing cars, um, you know, smoking marijuana. And then I had my first drink of alcohol um, around age 15, I want to say. We were at a party and the guy we were hanging out with one year older than we were, my brother and I, he handed us these beers and he goes off into the crowd. And I remember we're looking at each other with these beers in our hands thinking there's no way we can drink these because mom and dad would absolutely kill us. but we also knew that if we were going to be accepted by this group, then we have to, you know, we have to kind of go on to get to get on. And so we drank the beer and I remember when it, you know, it, it got down into my stomach and, you know, it heated up my chest and, and it was just a soothing feeling of, of freedom that came over me. And, it, you know, all my inhibitions lowered and I could, you know, freely move about this 
you know, this crowd and, and talk to people and talk to girls and, and not fumble over my words. At least I thought so. Maybe I did, but um, <laughs> it, it was just a freedom. I didn't, I, I didn't know to that point. And so it was, that was my infatuation with alcohol. Fast forward a couple of years, we continue to, you know, steal cars. I'm selling crack cocaine. I'm kind of thinking I had to do these things to, to be a man, you know, um, in, in the hood and, and those things, even though I wasn't raised that way, this is the persona I felt I had to, I had to step into. And so my addiction at that point, I'll say it, it manifested into a, an addiction at that point, because it went from drinking in social settings and parties to now drinking in isolation because I'm starting to now think about my life as a 16 year old, looking at my future being 18 in a couple years. And I come from a very impoverished neighborhood and I see my classmates who are predominantly white living in middle-class neighborhoods, you know, getting cars at 16 years of age, having nice homes and things like that. And it was just this, this, this sense of inadequacy for myself and, and, and where my life could, could potentially go. And so that depression, if you will, led to me drinking in isolation. I would go to my room, turn on some sad music and close the door and just get drunk at 16 years of age. And alcohol was my was my best friend um, until it wasn't, as I always say. And so at 19 years of age, I didn't graduate high school. I fell about a credit and a half short. Um, ended up committing an armed robbery with several of my friends. One of them committed a murder, actually, by himself. So at ages 18 and 19, five of us went to prison with sentences that ranged from five to 31 and a half years. I got a five and a half year sentence for my part in conspiring the robbery. I didn't actually physically go in and commit the robbery, but I drew up the blueprint and, and you know, because it was a restaurant that I used to work at and things like that. And so um, several months later, we all get caught. And um, I go to prison. My family's, of course, devastated, but I have a very loving, supportive family. They stick by my side, get me through that ordeal. I got my GED and kind of turned over a new leaf and was going to church and things like that and trying to do everything by the book. But after about six months, I felt that I was missing out because at 22 years of age, everyone I knew was, you know, going to clubs and meeting women and, you know, having fun. And so I told myself, I can I can hang out with these guys. I can go to the clubs and do all that, but I don't have to drink, right? And I mean, obviously today we know we know much better than that. You know, if you if you hang out in the barbershop long enough, you know, you're gonna get a haircut. Okay. So yep. absolutely. So that happened. So I'm now drinking on a regular basis, but I enrolled in community college courses because I wanted to become a nurse. I had a job at a warehouse that, that loved me and I'm, I'm, you know, moving up the ladder and that and looking to get into the sales department and things like that. I moved out, you know, living with a, a woman in Vancouver, Washington. And so, you know, I bought my first car and it's a beautiful Acura and, you know, I saved up, you know, like $5,000 to get it. So externally, if you looked at my life, you would think that, that I had everything, you know, in order. Right. But meanwhile, I am giving myself the excuse to drink Every single day when I got off work, right, because I worked hard and I deserved it and, and this is just what I do. And so making that compromise led to me then drinking and driving every day for the next two years, which then culminated with the main reason why I'm here today and why I spent um, the next 17 and a half years in prison, because after drinking and driving on New Year's Eve of 2003, 
partying all day. I ended up running through a red light and crashing into a car, killing two innocent, beautiful people and severely injuring another person. And the turning point, I mean, obviously that was a turning point, but it was three days later that I'm in my, my, my prison cell, my jail cell, and somebody slides the Oregonian newspaper underneath my door. And I thought, well, you know, this is strange. I, I didn't ask anybody to see a paper, but I figured there must be something important in there for me to read. Sure enough, there was. I thumbed through the paper. I see my picture. And with each paragraph that I read that morning, for the first time since this crash had happened four days prior, you know, I now get to see my victims as people. And it starts to outline these people's incredible stories. And the story, their stories were, in a nutshell, that they were recovering addicts. They had like 16 or 17 years clean. They were totally immersed in the recovery community in Portland. They would volunteer with Volunteers of America. They would watch women's children so these ladies could attend AA and NA meetings. They were just totally beloved, right? Totally respected. And in fact, the night that this crash happened, they were actually returning home from celebrating at a clean and sober New Year's Eve party at the Portland Convention Center when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the, the columnist had talked about, the, you heard, you saw, you read the word palpable irony. He called it a palpable irony that these people who had devoted their lives to help people get clean and sober would have their lives cut short by a drunk driver. And he said something at the end of the article that, that changed my life forever. He, even to this day, I still live by this by this this closing statement. He said, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them. And at the time, I'm only 24 years old, and I knew based on the the, the mandatory minimum sentencing laws in the state of Oregon, I knew that I was going to prison for about 20 years. Day for day, no early release, no early parole for good behavior or good, you know, working a job or getting, it didn't matter. Day for day. It's considered a person-to-person -person violent crime when you drink and drive and kill somebody in the state of Oregon. And so I couldn't, I couldn't fully wrap my head around um, how this situation was, was supposed to help me in the end, but I knew I couldn't ignore what he said. I knew it was, it was so profound. I had to figure out what that statement was supposed to mean for my 24 year old life. And so I, I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was to pray about it and to ask for some revelation or discernment into these words and how they were going to apply to my life. So like for the next, I don't know, six or seven months, I like meditated on that phrase. I would, I would hear it as I'm, you know, eating breakfast or walking the track outside or whatever I'm hearing this phrase and then it finally came to me that, Martin, the only way, the absolute only way that this, this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies and I do everything I possibly can to prevent anybody else from following in, in my footsteps, right? And so in that moment, in that jail cell, I, I committed to doing that. I had no idea what shape that was going to take. I didn't even know how long I was going to be in prison. I didn't know what would be offered, you know, in the prison setting toward this effort. I just knew that I was committed. I knew I was committed to the cause. However, that would manifest. I was all for it. And so with that, several months later, I took a plea bargain for 
210 months, uh, 17 and a half years, day for day, in state prison. And that is when I set out on this mission. Unbelievable. Oh my gosh. And I feel like this is just when the journey begins, right? Like we haven't even, we haven't gotten there yet, but I wanted to ask you a question, Martin. And then I do kind of want to hear what steps you took to kind of get you are, where are you today? But, you know, I think unanimously, anybody that struggles with addiction, regardless of the circumstances of their story, regardless of what happened, what life events took place, I think we can all unanimously agree that we struggle with shame and guilt. Shame and guilt of our actions, of our past behaviors. And I'm just curious to hear from you a little bit on your take on that and how you've managed to work through presumably a great deal of shame and guilt given your story so far? That's a great question. You are absolutely right. And I'll say that a lot of people interchangeably use shame and guilt as though they are one and the same. They may feel the same, but but there's a distinction between the two. And for the first, I'll say for the first three or four years after this crash and, and notice I'm, I'm, I'm very deliberate in saying crash and not accident, right? Because we know that when you make the choice to drink and drive, it's not an accident because accidents are usually not preventable. Driving drunk is hundred percent preventable. So um, there is that, but I'll say, so I, I, I thrust myself into, into this mission when I got to state prison, I started taking community college courses, right? Because I'm like, if I'm going to, help people who struggling in addiction. I need to have an education beyond a GED. And, and so I'll, I'll take what I can get. So that's what I was doing. And I started to work as a tutor in the GED program and things like that. And so I'm kind of channeling my energy into this, this mission for 11 months of the year. And then in the 12th month of the year is when everything changed. And there was this, this monumental shift where I was no longer my, you know, kind of easygoing, gregarious self. I, I wasn't hanging out with the guys. I wasn't lifting weights. I wasn't jogging the track. I wasn't, you know, my energy was just low. And what I was doing for the month of December is forcing myself to relive every detail of the day that the crash happened. Because in some kind of weird way, I felt that that, that was me honoring my victims Right. Not allowing myself to forget what happened, which I mean, let's be honest, you're never going to forget something like this happened. But by by almost punishing myself and reliving these 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 gruesome details. And I felt that that was, you know, that was that was me kind of never forgetting. And but I'll tell you, after the third or fourth year, when that would happen, you know, I realized that I was doing I was doing the exact opposite of what I said I was going to do. Because I said in my sentencing to the family members and the, you know, the media and everybody who was there that I was going to spend the rest of my life doing everything I could to, to prevent anybody else from following my footsteps. And I was doing that for 11 months of the year, but not 12. So I was actually dishonoring them by kind of wallowing. And it wasn't self-pity. It was just like beating myself up about what, and it was shame, right? It was shame. It wasn't guilt. And the, the distinction is that guilt is our conscience that's, that's telling us when we've done something wrong or we don't feel good about, it's telling us the course correct. I feel badly about this, so I'm going to do a 180 and try to do everything I can to not repeat that. That's a good, healthy, corrective mechanism. Shame, however, is when it takes that guilt and it, and it, 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 it morphs into 
kind of this overarching dark cloud of, you know, self-loathing and, you know, telling yourself that you're not worthy and you're not forgivable and you're not lovable and you're not, you know, all these terrible character assassinations, right? And there's no, there's no good that can come from that. And so once I kind of realized that, and then I realized that I was actually dishonoring my victims by not pouring, you know, everything into 365 days of the year and honoring what I said I was going to do, then I said, no more. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do, and I'm going to channel all of my energy into making a difference in other people's lives, people who struggle with addiction. So no more families have to go through what I put these two, fa three families through, right? And that people don't have to continue to hurt their families and and can give themselves the best chance to to live their fullest lives. And so I just kind of had a honest conversation with myself about how I was wasting my energy um, by living in shame. And I said, no more. Yeah, absolutely. I think in so many ways too, what I hear you did was you took action, right? Like, and I think in, in so many aspects of life, like when we want to get out of a rut or we want to overcome a limiting belief or, you know, get away from imposter syndrome, like that truly is the recipe. Just take action. Just, just literally do something. Um, and, I see that you kind of did that, um, which I guess just kind of leads me to to ask what you did do to take action in the rest of your time um, and kind of just like bring us to to where you are today as well. Sure. So and you're right, even though the feelings of motivation might not always be there, just the taking the action part can be enough to to bring the motivation along. Right. You just start doing and then you start to feel like you want to do it. And so with that, I, I delved into my education and I was taking one community college course at a time, which is what they were offering at the prison for about three years. And I I didn't really know how it worked. I figured if I take enough classes, they'll, they'll give me a degree at some point. I, don't, I didn't know about a study plan and, you know, all these <laughs> structured things. And so and so that's what I did. And then sadly, in, in 2008, I lost my father very unexpectedly. And but in that event happening, we were able to get um, his pension and and, you know, life insurance policies and things like that. And so then I could now start to fund my education beyond what was being offered in the prison. So I started taking classes at Louisiana State University and Indiana University. And um, and I eventually uh, parlayed all of that into an associate's degree from Indiana University. And then I went on to get a, a bachelor's in sociology from Colorado State University. And then I got a master's in psychology from um, California Coast University. And, and I'll tell you that so I'm taking these classes in sociology and psychology, and I'm really like, even though I'm getting a formal education, I'm really starting to unravel kind of the layers of where everything starts to go wrong for me behaviorally and, and coming up as an adolescent and seeing myself a certain way and looking at society in certain ways. And it's starting to make sense, right? It's starting to make sense why I have such a strong need to belong, why I suffered with poor self-esteem, how society played a role in that, how my individual psyche played a role in that, role in that. My psychosocial development was, was, you know, stagnated, you know, because of, well, numerous factors, but it's starting to make sense. And so I'm taking that information and, and not just having an aha moment for myself, but I'm now pouring that into the young guys that I'm tutoring through the education department, because we're not just talking about math and writing and science. 
we're also talking about life, right? I mean, I'm having one-on-one sessions, if you will, with these guys about life and life choices and talking about, you know, what they want to be when they get out of here. And and I'll tell you, there were so many young guys in there who, um, you know, they walk around with the facade and the tough guy and, because that's what you have to do to, to not be, you know, preyed upon, right? But they would seek me out when I'm walking the track or working out and they would they would have candid conversations with me about life, about trauma, about, you know, being molested as a child. I mean, stuff you just don't talk about in prison, right? You just don't. But they felt safe with me. And so that kind of reaffirmed the the notion that counseling is where I need to be. This is, you know, this is who I am. And so that was really, really rewarding for me. And once I got the master's in psychology, then I, I transferred to the uh, one prison, which is a whole nother conversation as to why there's only one prison at a medium custody level that offered a substance abuse treatment program. I didn't qualify because I still have five and a half years left and you have to have less than uh, like six months on, or less than nine months on your sentence to qualify. But I convinced them because I had put so much money and time and effort into my education and, and this mission they cut some red tape, allowed me to join the program. And I was in there for seven months, five days a week. And that was when I had actually learned the difference between sobriety and recovery. I assumed, because I hadn't drank anything in 12 years at that point, that I was in recovery. But I wasn't, right? I was just sober. I just hadn't drank. And so now I'm really starting to understand the, you know, I learned about the, you know, the bio, cycle, social, spiritual model of recovery. And I learned about, you know, relapse warning signs and internal triggers and external triggers and relapse prevention and all these things that that that, that build a found a foundation to one's recovery and to one's quality of life in recovery, right? Not just kind of going through the motions. And so that was extremely eye-opening. I graduate that program seven months later. I then start to work as an intern to accrue the clinical hours toward the, the certifications. And so I'm working with guys one-on-one. -on -one. I'm leading the groups. I'm doing assessments. I'm doing orientations. I'm doing all the clinical stuff. And then um, I got certified as a recovery mentor first in 2018. And then the following year, uh, got enough hours to get certified as a substance abuse counselor. And then finally, I'll say in 2015, they had they had, they had started a new program within the prison for DUI victim impact panels. And so they would they would bring in volunteers from the outside, from the community who had lost a loved one to a DUI driver. And then they would have one of us on the inside tell our story about how we perpetrated this crime. Obviously, you know, taking full accountability and being remorseful and all of that. And we're sitting in a room of 50 inmates in a circle and everybody's there voluntarily, right? I mean, nobody's mandated to be there. And there's some guys in there doing double life sentences, never going home. And I'm telling you, like there was so much cathartic energy in that room. There were tears, there were hugs. You know, some volunteers had, you know, come in with kind of this, I'm going to show these inmates and, you know, because the guy who killed their loved one never apologized, right? And I remember there was one guy who told his story on the inside and a woman who had lived with this for 20 years, the guy killed her 18-year-old beautiful daughter. And he never apologized, never was remorseful, anything like that. And after he shared his story, you know, she hugged him and said, you know, I've been I've been waiting to hear this this level of contrition and accountability and acknowledgement for the lives that were lost. And she said, I know you're not the guy who did this to my daughter, but I feel like, you know, that 
that remorse and that apology was was for me. And it gave her a sense, it gave her some sense of healing. And so that was also when I knew that once I got out of prison, I was going to continue with sharing my story um, wherever, you know, wherever um, I could be had and whoever would listen. And so that has certainly happened today. And I'm extremely grateful for that. Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. When you look at the work that you're doing now, you're speaking on podcasts, you're speaking in high schools, you know, all these different kind of arenas. What's What's a consistent message that you share across the board, across all those communities? If there's a consistent message, it is that, you know, you never think that something like this is ever going to happen to you, right? No matter how you are living your life, as reckless as you are living, you still think that that, that you're above this happening, right? I mean, you read the newspaper, you see the news, you see this happens on a daily basis, right? But you never think it's going to happen to you. And I just, I am, I am, you know, quick to hammer home the point that I was that guy. And I always thought that this only happened to, you know, lightweight drinkers who, who couldn't contain their alcohol, but it would never happen to me because I'm smarter than that. I'm better than that. You know, I know how to, you know, drive, you know, pretty good when I'm intoxicated. And if you ask anybody who, who this has happened to, I guarantee you, they're all going to say the same thing. They never thought it would happen to them. And so that's that's the kind of, you know, the through line message. Obviously, my message varies if I'm speaking to a high school versus, you know, a, a law enforcement conference. Right. I just came back from Oregon a couple months ago speaking to law enforcement officers um, uh, uh, in Oregon and about DUI prevention. And, you know, I just I just let them know because, you know, they they, they have to, they have, you know, so many factors go into them doing their job and do they pull over? Do they not pull over? Do they subject somebody to a field sobriety test? Do they not? And I just, I use my story to, you know, to let them know that I was, I was pulled over three months before this happened, totally intoxicated, driving like a madman. The officer checked my license, checked my insurance, registration, everything came back good. He sent me on my way. And there was no way I should have left that scene, um, not in handcuffs no way. And so I just use that as a cautionary tale. If you have an inclination that somebody might be intoxicated, they should, they should be subjected to a field test, you know? So th the message varies, right? Depending on who I'm speaking with. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I can't help but think of my own experiences and I know my own experiences echoes a lot of our listeners. We have a um, majority of our listeners are women um, I can assume that many of those women have children. And, you know, I think back to my kind of, well, my entire drinking career, I was absolutely behind the wheel, um, majority of the time. But then the, the moments that really kind of stick out like a flash to me are the moments when I had my, at the time, you know, two, three-year-old daughter in the backseat. Um, and I know many women kind of have been through this. And I think that's where, you know, it's interesting to think like of the work that you're doing. I see it so much as re reducing, I use the term like reducing the rock bottom. That's not necessarily what I mean here. But what I mean here is like anybody listening can hear your message and 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 put a mirror to their own face and their own actions and realize that it's it's literally a matter of the next time you're getting in the car, um, that this that this could happen. And then the ramifications that that can have 
Um, and we already have so much, I already have so much shame. And I love that you do the distinction between the word shame and guilt. Um, I already still am processing through so much shame, especially around those memories, right? Or about kind of driving with Annabelle in the backseat of my car. Um, that, you know, that's that's where we need to to bury it, like with that shame before it kind of takes it to the next step. So I'm wondering, Martin, like, what are some things that that we can be doing, even if we're in active addiction right now, to how do you advise people to to reduce that, right? Like to to prevent that. Like, what are some of the things that you're sharing? Right. So I tell people, you know, it's not it's it's not any of any of our business, you know, what you do behind closed doors. If you want to drink every day, I mean, I certainly wouldn't encourage it, but that's your business. You're a grown adult. You can do what you do. But the minute you get into a vehicle and start driving, now you've made it our business, right? So I, I always end my message with, if you know you're going to be out drinking or you think there is a possibility that you might, that you absolutely have to have a plan in place for how you're going to get home before you do that. Because the minute you start drinking, all bets are off. Your, your, your judgment is the first thing that goes. Your, your reactivity time, motor skills, all of that is out the window. So at that point, you're not going to be able to make a sound decision and say, oh, yeah, I probably shouldn't be driving now because your deluded, you know, uh, intoxicated brain is going to tell you, oh, no, you're fine. You've done this a million times. You've got this. No worries. And so have a plan in place for how you're going to get home. And the, the beauty in, in living in today's world is that unlike, you know, in 2003, when this happened, you, know, you had to call a cab. Right. Today, everything is right there, literally at your fingertips right for uber for lyft and 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 all these 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 services and so th there's really no excuse if you have a designated driver then great but just make sure you have a plan in place i would also say if you're you know at a bar at a club at an event and you see somebody who has been drinking entirely too much you know that they have no business driving then it's absolutely your responsibility to ensure that they don't and I tell people all the time, I don't care if you have to wrestle them to the ground, take their keys, do it. I'm telling you, they will thank you in the morning. But, you know, don't end up like me. Don't allow somebody you know to end up like me and trade the next 17 and a half years of your life or more for one night of fun. Right? Don't be the reason why a man has to watch his fiance die in his arms because that is what happened that night. The guy who survived watched his fiance he had just proposed to hours prior at, at the party die in his arms. You know, don't take, you know, beautiful, innocent people from this world who are minding their own business because you decided to be selfish and go out and have fun and not think about the consequences. Because I'm telling you, it will happen to you. It can and it will. I love that you brought up this idea of not turning the blind eye and that we do have a responsibility because I think so many of us do just naturally just stay in our silo. That's not my business. I'm not going to get involved. But it's the same thing. If you saw somebody robbing a store in broad daylight, that is your responsibility to do something about it. So this is really no different, right? That's an interesting Absolutely. way of looking at it. And I think like to me, what I'm just hearing is like communities need to come together. We have to have each other's back, right? Absolutely, one thousand percent. Always tell people, at, you know, when I share at panels that that we we have a sole responsibility to keep our community safe. 
right? And we all have an individual part in doing that. Mm -hmm. And obviously being responsible with our own bodies and behavior, but also being vigilant and looking for problematic behavior that is around us and not just turning a blind eye and going the other way and saying, oh, not my business, because I can guarantee you if, if you then see on the news later that night that that person driving that vehicle or, or doing whatever they were doing, end up killing somebody, hurting somebody, killing a baby, whatever the case, it's going to be on your conscience because you know you could have done something to change it, to possibly prevent it. And so be proactive, take action, um, and and work with your community in whatever way that is to to try to reduce, you know, this and and and, and frankly, any any um you know, problematic behavior, catastrophic behavior that changes lives forever. I mean, that one night of fun changed countless people's lives forevermore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny, as we're recording this, um, an episode just came out, just a solo episode on how to talk to our kids about alcohol. And um, it's funny, the episode is actually more about kind of younger children, because that's my daughter, right? She's 10 now. Um, but I'm curious, you must speak as you speak to high schools, maybe you're speaking to high school parents, like, what are you advising, like, these two things, how parents are communicating with their teenage children, who are just getting behind the wheel for the first time to begin with, and then also, how are you communicating to the young children who are just starting to experiment with alcohol and drugs? Yeah, and so I'm actually going to be going to Portland tomorrow to speak to some middle school kids uh, on Tuesday. And my message is is obviously a little bit different to them than it is to adults, you know, having gotten their first DUI. And so the main thing I talk about choices and consequences, right? And 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 what goes into our choices. And a lot of it is is peer induced, right? At that age, because your peer group starts to take a more prominent role in your life, and your your family is still your family. But as you go through those stages of psychosocial development, the peer group takes a more prominent role, and so you're subjected to being um, influence to do things that you know in your heart of heart is not the right thing to do because mom and dad would you know would not approve of this and so you you have to trust that intuition and I'm telling and I tell kids that you know just because you think everybody's doing this or doing that they're not there are many 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 kids who are not doing those things even though you think everybody's doing it I'm telling you they're not stick out the kids who are not doing those things figure out what you want out of this life right Figure out who you want to be in this life as you're trying on these identities, which we go through between, they say, ages, you know, 14 and 19, the identity formation phase, stage, if you will. Um, you know, it's OK. It's totally natural to try on new identities. Um, but make sure that the identity that you assume coincides with what you want out of life. And if you are seeking approval from people, kids who are doing the wrong things and, you know, heading in the wrong direction in their own lives, then that should be an indicator to you, you know, that I need to not hang around this person because they're going down a path that, that I don't want to be a part of. I know what I want for my life, or at least I know what I don't want. And I don't want that. I don't want to, you know, and I tell kids that, you know, the choices you make today, trust me, will have a direct impact on where you will find yourself at ages 30 and 40, because every single day that I was locked up, guys would talk about and wish that they could go back to their high school years and do it all over again and make better choices. But it's obviously too late for them, right? It's too late for me. But I let young people know it's, it's not too late for you, right? You can still make the next right choice. 
to set yourself on a on a good path so yeah it's the, the compound effect right like all it is is just one tiny thing after the next after the next after the next and I think that is, I know that's definitely how it played out for me, right? Like none of us start drinking with the intention to become addicted to alcohol or to get behind the wheel and have a you know horrifying event take place. None of us plan that, none of us want that, right? And so I think that it's so important to place value on each incremental step and decision that we are making. And it does, I think you're right, especially for these impressionable ages, like you quite literally are paving the path for your own future. Um, 100%, yeah, yeah, because we don't, like you said, we don't we don't think that taking that first drink or smoking that first blunt or skipping that first class is ever going to lead to a life of, of alcoholism and drug addiction and you know not graduating high school and being more likely to go to prison. Like we'd never make that long-term connection. But again, if you ask anybody who has gone down that path where it started, 99% of the time, they're going to say it started during those adolescent years. That's where it started. And so I just I really try to really try to hammer that home. And then for parents, I just encourage them to keep open dialogue with their kids because kids, you know, they a lot of parents don't believe this. But but statistically and, and through studies, it shows that even though kids want independence as they get older they also still want the guidance of their parents, mm -hmm. right? They do want to be parented, mm -hmm. but they also want the freedom to be autonomous as well in, in, in many respects. And so I know it's a fine thread that, you know, you have to kind of, you know, toe that line, but, but there is still a role, very much um, a desire for the kids to want to be parented. And so I think if just keeping that open dialogue and not giving them a reason to want to you know, suppress their feelings and to not, you know, talk about this or talk about that and turn to alcohol or drugs to suppress those feelings. They know they can come to you and talk, you know, freely and not be judged and not be condemned and still be accepted. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think all of us value autonomy in our own ways. And especially, I know my 10 year old is fighting hard for it. So, um, but I think <laughs> especially in those teenage years, I think something to remember too, for parents, um, of any grade age and obviously I'm assuming for older since mine's only 10 but um, you know my this is actually something we talked about in therapy not too long ago when we were talking about Annabelle and some of you know the kind of rebellious erratic behavior which applies to teenage years too is just like remember that when your children are are kind of looking you at in the eye with like hatred and frustration and whatever those emotions are like that's your children showing a big emotions that they don't know how to manage themselves um and b they're showing them in a place that they feel safe so as long as that you're providing them with a home that is that safe place open communication i couldn't agree more martin um then you know there does have to be that that degree to where we do give away that that freedom, that self-governance to our children to have knowing that we've provided a home where they feel safe and they're going to come to us as well. Um, and that's on us, right, as parents. That's right. It absolutely is. And that was eloquently stated. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you. Martin, I'm wondering, um, uh, there's a million more questions I could ask, but, you know, I, I want to kind of hear from you you know, is there something that we haven't touched on today that like is heavy on your heart? That's a message that you definitely like to talk about and share um, kind of before we start wrapping up. Um, the main thing, not the main thing, but yeah, I would just say for the person who is 
um, you know, with, as they say, sober curious or, you know, it, it can be a very daunting thing for somebody who is struggling in their addiction and to think about, you know, being sober for the next five years or the next 10 years. And so just because of that kind of, you know, monumental mountain that, that stands before them because it's so daunting, they say, well, I, I'm, I'm just not going to try because there's no way I can make it, you know, a year or five years. And I would say that if you if you literally just focus on what is in front of you, which is the next choice, right? You have the next choice to either to, to, to go this way or go that way, to drink or to not drink, to reach out for help or not reach out for help. Then just make the next right choice. And, and you know, Dr. King, you know, beautifully stated that, you know, we don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. And so if you take the first step, then you, you, you focus on the next step. And eventually you do get to the top of the staircase. But the beauty in recovery is that we don't have to take any steps alone. There's always help. And so you can definitely reach out to me directly. Um, you know, I, I, I'm on uh, Instagram at Martin L. Lockett. And I get people connected. My day job, I get people connected with resources all across the country, where whether it be, you know, formal treatment, inpatient, outpatient, you know, peer mentor, group therapy, online, in-person, insurance-based, free I mean, the resources are plentiful. And I'd be more than happy to get anybody connected. If you just want to talk to me about, you know, how scary it is and you don't know what to do, then let's have that conversation as well. I just want to do everything I can to support people who are who are ready to make that decision or at least thinking about it and um, and get people connected with the help that is out there. Thank you so much. I'm dying to ask you how you feel knowing you've accomplished and are still accomplishing the mission you promised that you would accomplish. It is. It's very humbling. I got to be honest with you. You know, I've got I've got several conferences coming up with the like the Pennsylvania DUI Association, the uh, Drug Treatment Corps Professionals. Um, I'm going on a five college tour in New York in September oh with the Save a Life tour. Um, it's 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 humbling, but I'll tell you, it's not surprising. And and I, the the reason why I say that is because when I was in prison. And I did a lot of walking around the track and things like that to kind of, you know, you know, get away from it all, if I can call it that. But I would envision myself in these spaces, talking to these crowds and delivering my message. Right. And it just it just energized me like it juiced me up. And so I knew that, you know, I'm a firm believer in the laws of attraction. Right. What you project, what you manifest, what you meditate on, then that's what that's what you know, manifest. That's what happens. And so I am doing what I knew I was going to do, but I am very much humbled and honored to have the opportunities to do so. And so I just want to, I just want to stay faithful to this mission. I want to continue to honor my victims' lives and their memories and legacies and, um, and carry the message forward and try to help as many people along the way as I can. That's incredible. Thank you so much. And I think the power of visualiza visualization, that's always a hard word for me, um, can apply to our friends who are listening who maybe are still on you know, that journey to try to get sober. Like, Don't underestimate the power of sitting in the morning, having a cup of tea, closing your eyes, and and picturing who that person is, what that person is doing right now, you know, picture every single tiny detail of that and keep doing that morning after morning, after morning, after morning. And I promise you the effect of that is, is going to compound. Um, 
It's huge. It's huge. So thank you for sharing that. Martin, one last question before we wrap up. Um, okay. If you could create one rule or law, it's hypothetical. So we're going to assume that everybody's going to follow it. So if you could create one rule or law as it relates to adolescence and alcohol, what would that rule or law be? Adolescence and alcohol. Well, obviously it would be absolutely, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, closed off to them where there was no way they could possibly could possibly you know reach it um but i would i would just say as a as a society i just wish that alcoholism drug addiction i wish it was it was treated and seen as the disease that it is and not just bad choices that people make if everybody had to see it and treat it the same way they do autoimmune diseases and cancer and, you know, lupus and congestive heart failure and all these diseases that we are afflicted with, then it would obviously give us a much more effective approach and compassion and, you know, humanity around this and more people could get the help that they need. There wouldn't be this shame around suffering from alcoholism or addiction, right? Just like there's not shame if you have cancer or you have another um, disease or, or, or affliction. And so, I mean, if I could just wave a magic wand and make it that everybody would, would see it as the disease that it is scientifically, um, then gosh, we would be in a much better place today. Yeah, maybe we'd start taking a more proactive approach, right? Right. Wow. Unbelievable. Martin, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and your wisdom. Together, sober listeners, you can find Martin at martinlockett.com and also on Instagram at martinlockett. He's very active and inspiring to follow, so I highly recommend it. He's also the first one to give you a love and a heart back. So <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> um, but honestly, thank you so much for the work that you have been doing for gosh, 17, well, 19 and a half years now, um, honoring your victims and really helping to reduce pain and suffering around the world. Um, we're here to support you. Thank you so much for being here, Martin. Thank you so much for having me. It was truly an honor to be here today. Of course. Together, Sober listeners, you'll hear from us next week with another story. If you're still listening right now, I'm going to assume that you really liked this episode. And if that's the case, can you please go ahead and rate and review the Together Sober podcast? What this does is organically puts the podcast into more listeners' ears, thus creating more lasting and effortless sobriety and mental peace for others.